HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Nutrislice, helping school nutrition programs who want to do a little more with their marketing communications. For more information, visit Nutrislice.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning, and welcome to Inside School Food on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Laura Stanley, and it is November 2nd, so Farm to School Month 2015 is officially over. But we're squeezing in one last Farm to School Month episode from New Jersey, known as the Garden State out of pride in an agricultural heritage that dates back hundreds of years. Um, I am Jersey born and bred, a.k.a. a Jersey girl, and for those of you who don't know New Jersey, I've got news for you. It's still the Garden State, um, home to about 10,000 farms. Uh, New Jersey is a leading national producer of peaches, strawberries, blueberries, bell peppers, spinach, apples, and cranberries. It's still famous for its world-class sweet corn and tomatoes. Um, But if you restrict your travels to the crowded northeast, you might not know that. Um, That said, today's story is set in the crowded northeast, in the town of West New York, which together with its neighbors Union City and Guttenberg comprise the most densely populated area in the nation. Um, West New York lies across the Hudson from Manhattan, around the corner from the mouth of the Lincoln Tunnel. Um, In the schools, the majority of students come from new Americans, Spanish-speaking homes, and 79% receive free or reduced-price meals. And yet they all know why New Jersey is called the Garden State. They know where the farms are, and they totally love to eat what's grown there. West New York school children are incredibly enthusiastic consumers of locally grown fruit and vegetables, and today we're going to learn how that came to be. So to tell the story, I have with me in the studio two guests, um, West New York School Food Service Director Sal Valenza and Mikey Azara of Zone 7, um, Sal's New Jersey-based locavore produce distributor. So Sal and Mikey, it's such a treat to have you here in the studio with me. Thank you for coming to Bushwick. It's always fun to drive to Brooklyn. <laughs> Great to be here. Um, 
So at the risk of making your head swell, I have to say I find you both to be pretty inspirational characters. Are you okay with that? Okay. We're, we'll go with it. Okay. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, so, Sal, you, you have um, moved a high-needs district that once got by on, like, TV dinner-style heat-and-serve meals um, now to at a kind of a locavore pinnacle. pinnacle. That's a national model of farm-to-school success. And along the way, you earned gold status from the Alliance for a Healthier Generation um, for your high school, Memorial High School, and that was the first gold that the uh, Alliance ever awarded, right? Yeah, we were the first gold school with the Alliance for Healthier Generation. Yeah, and you've received recognition from the Alliance as a national program champion, and the um, School Nutrition Association has named you Outstanding Director of the Year for New Jersey and the entire Northeast. And aren't you the SNA New Jersey president this year also? All sorts of stuff I do, yeah. All sorts of stuff. Yeah, I'm the president of the New Jersey School Nutrition Association this year. Um, and we've been able to do a lot in West New York. And the whole reason we've been able to do that is just because we've had a lot of support from all over the school and we have a great team that we work with so right. you know you can talk about what I did but I really don't do that much I just sort of come up with crazy ideas and people make them work okay well you can I'm going to give you plenty of opportunity to give others credit but I, it's my job to give you some of the credit thank you <laughs> um, and Mikey and Zone 7 have been your accomplice in so much of what you've been able to, to do Mikey you launched your business how many years ago? Almost eight years ago in May of 2008. Okay. And you began as a boutique distributor, um, smaller, sustainable farms and higher-end buyers from restaurants and specialty groceries. But now you are moving product from those same farms into mm-hmm. shop rights mm-hmm. and even public schools year-round. So what I want to find out today is how you've been able to pull that off. Mm-hmm. Um but before we go there, um, I, Sal, I, you know, I visited the school um, on October 23rd. It was a Friday, and it was a very special day in your middle school. Um, and Zone 7 was very involved in what you pulled off that day. Tell, tell us what was going on that day. So with it being National Farm to School Month and it was World Food Day, we decided probably about in September, maybe even August sometime, with the prompting from Mikey and Zone 7 to do an event for those two things. Mm -hmm. And what we put together was what we called no boxes, no bottles, and no bags. So everything that we made in the middle school that day was made from scratch, was sourced locally. A lot of things were made by students. So we were able to bring in different people to sort of help us play with the kids. We stretched our own mozzarella cheese for the pizzas. We made our own pizza dough. We made pickles. We had a beekeeper come in to talk to the kids about honey. And we made honey-glazed carrots. We had a farmer come in from Vitality Pastures who raises hogs. And he was able to come and talk to the kids. We used that pork to make our pulled pork sandwiches. So we had a lot of the people that were involved in the, in the different things coming in and getting the kids excited about it. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the week, we'd, we'd hit every kid in the school for some sort of an event. Mm-hmm. And probably about 250 to 300 of them for hands-on events 
where they were actually making food that they were going to eat on Friday. And, and what was so neat was that the food making was led by local businesses. So you had a local pizza guy come in to make this. It was actually a gorgeous whole grain pizza crust. And yes. your local creamery did the mozzarella with them. So that's awesome. Um, I want to play a clip um, uh, from Rachel Orr, who is your assistant food service director. Um, Jack, you want to play clip number one? All of the produce, everything, and that was really important to us, was okay. to do everything from New Jersey. On the Harvest Bar today, we have two prepared salads, coleslaw um, and a kale salad with Hawaiian ginger dressing. Um, the Hawaiian ginger is from New Jersey. It's just the variety of Hawaiian ginger. Um, and our chef, Chef Kim, uh, uh, did all of that stuff, um, prepared the, the dressings um, from scratch. So the coleslaw, uh, the cabbage for the coleslaw is from Traeger's. The kale from the kale salad is from Marolda Farms. The spinach um, that we have on the salad bar is from Petrolongo. The romaine is from Jersey Legacy. The Boston red lettuce is from Jersey Legacy. The eggplant is from Mooth Farm. Uh, the sweet potatoes are from Shepherd. Green beans from Petrolongo. Cauliflower from Shady Brook Farms. Cucumbers from Shepherd. Red peppers from Mooth and uh, apples from Solbury and Weaver Orchards. Um, the kids the kids eat it all. It's really incredible. They eat vegetables like I could not believe. When I came the first time, I saw them eating lunch. I couldn't believe they were voluntarily taking all of these like wacky vegetables that I didn't really want to eat until I was, you know, maybe in my 20s, so. <laughs> so, Mikey and Sam, watching your faces while you listen to that, and you are like grinning from ear to because ear. Because that's that's awesome, and it's what people come in and look, and they're like, "Are your kids really going to eat that stuff?" And I always say, "Just watch them," and they they load their plates up with this stuff, and they eat it all. Yeah, and and, it, and it's great, and it's interesting to listen to Rachel saying that Rachel came into work with us as an intern last year, and we hired her on. And she's so enthusiastic, and she just she loves what she does, which is great. But the fact that even she looked at it and said, I, "These kids aren't going to eat this stuff," <laughs> and you watch them, and, and they just load up. I I saw those plates just piled high, golden chicken legs, and like salads, roasted veggies. Yeah, yeah, nothing going into the trash. It's great. What yeah. I thought of Laura was that. You see that a lot on restaurant menus where they're mentioning the farm name, mm -hmm. but I've never heard it said in a school yeah. where for that meal they, they mentioned every single farm name. Yes. Um, I think that's the first time I've ever heard that. And yes. what, it, what it makes me think of is the more that the students know about where the food came from, how it was grown, and then to, to then involve them in that process, yeah. the more they understand and know it, they're going to eat it. Yeah, it's 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 really powerful. But but this was a special occasion. I think we need to make that clear. Um, you're not doing this every day. Well, you know the the fresh vegetables, the stuff, the Jersey vegetables. We are doing a lot of every day. Mm -hmm. The tough part for us was the proteins, and that you know it just gets very expensive. Yes, and it's a lot to do. But we've looked at some of the things that we did. So I have a chef Jaime who works in our middle school, who came to me on the Tuesday after the Friday event and said. So what from what we did on Friday can we keep doing? Mm -hmm. So we're talking about how we're going to translate that out. You know? And I think it's important that people say, oh, you can't do this or you can't do that. If we have something to shoot for, some, somewhere that we see, hey, you know what, this got done. How can we translate that down to what we do every day? I think that that's really important. And you know, look at the 
I, I just read this thing the other day about kicking butts. Mm-hmm. And it's not the B-U-T-T butts. It's the B-U-T butts. And saying, you know what? I could do that, but I've got that. But I've got this. And if we can kick some of those butts out of the way by giving an example of what can be done, I think that's really important. I, I'm glad you brought it. And I love that kicking butts. I'm going to hold on to that. Um, you don't have any more money to spend on food than most other districts. It's about a dollar twenty. And you're not getting any special grant money to do business with Zone 7. So, Mikey, you're, you're selling local produce to the West New York schools year-round. How do they afford it? Well, I guess I would say it's important to mention you said we started out as a boutique company. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, kicking the butts. We started out that way so that we could pay the farmers as much as we possibly could because our first goal was to keep these farmers in business. Mm-hmm. As we evolved over the years, we started reaching out to larger and larger farms to supply schools like West New York that had the volume needed for a school account. But also we found that when things are in abundance, they are competi- They are very competitively priced, especially for a state like New Jersey. These farms actually, surprisingly, are competing with California farms. So they know what the market prices are, and you know when things are abundant, their prices are equal or better. Quality is equal or better. It's, it's obviously significantly fresher to the school. So each week, we, we're tuned into what is most abundant right now, and what can the schools take advantage of. Right. And, and right. for us, I just want to jump in because for us, we look like, just take apples, for instance. There are times where Washington State apples are more expensive than New Jersey apples. Now, what we did was when, when that time comes, we buy a lot of apples. But we also sat the kids down and said, here's an apple that you normally get. These are the apples that we're getting now from New Jersey. And we had an apple tasting. And just the difference in that fresh apple was so huge. That, you know, the kids were, their, their faces lit up. They got apple juice running down their chins. So we just look at it and say, you know, Mikey, one of the things that, that we've gotten to at this point is I can take a lot of food. So if a farm has something that's perishable or a farm has some smaller apples that they're not selling, I'll take those. Mm-hmm. So I can help the farmers out by really taking a lot of what they have that they can't sell somewhere else or that is perishable. And taking, I'm doing five thousand meals a day. There's not a lot of people around that are that have that volume. Yeah, Mikey, tell me about those striped bell peppers. That's a great example. Right. So when a when a pepper that starts out green begins to turn red, it has little to no value. So let's just say if we get into talking price, you have a twenty five pound box of pepper. A green bell pepper goes for maybe about ten to twelve dollars to the farm. A red pepper is closer to fifteen to twenty dollars to the farm. When when it's in between red, green and red, guess what? The supermarket doesn't want it. Most restaurants don't want it. But there is a food service customer out there that that can use it, and they can we can get it from the farm for closer to five dollars just because they want to move them. They want to move them. They don't want anything going to waste or anything going on the compost pile. But, you know, I'm sure Sal can use it. And not to mention there's an educational uh, element to it as well. Well, it's the cucumbers. I mean, you look at Mikey had cucumbers that were coming in. The price was great on them. And so we were like, you know, let's buy them. So we bought a bunch of cucumbers. And then we had the science classes teach the kids about pickling. Mm -hmm. So we pickled cucumbers with the kids. 
So we got a great price on it. The kids got some education out of it, and we fed it to them. So it, was, it just wins all around when we can find those opportunities, those purchasing opportunities, and take advantage right, of right. them. And we should say that part of your story, part of what helps this work for you, although it's not necessarily a deal breaker for another district, is that um, West New, you, you're actually an employee of a small family uh, food service company called New Way Concessionaires. Correct. So, so your your bidding process is different, your procurement process. Right. It gives us a little bit more flexibility yeah, than so a self-up school. We're a little bit more nimble with what we can yeah, do. Yeah, but that's not to say you don't have lessons to uh, pass on to self-ops at no, all. No, certainly, uh, because mm-hmm. if they look at it, you know, um, we went to, I went to Produce Safety Academy with the, the USDA, and we talked when we were there about writing specs and knowing what you need and how important that is. And any school district can do that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're taking tomatoes and you're going to make tomato salad, they don't have to be the perfect, beautiful sized, red, gorgeous tomato. They can be a little big, a little small. They can be ugly. They may taste way better yeah. than that beautiful, pretty one. And you're going to cut them up anyway. Mm-hmm. So you need to know as a school district how to write your specs to get the produce that you need. Right. Right. And, um, so, and I know, Mikey, West New York is not your only school client. You, you, you told me that you are starting to move into a lot of school sales, something like 10% of your entire sales now to schools, or is that what you're hoping for going forward? Right now, we're, you know, amazingly, we're calling this the year of the school. There's just something happening where they're just coming forward to us without a whole lot of cold calls. So right now, we're delivering to about 20 school customers um, of which West New York is one, you know, even though there's six different schools there. Um, I would say that percentage wise, it's at least 10% and going up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's pretty exciting. Um, would you say that the West New York kids are what more omnivorous and more daring and what they're willing to try than your other school clients? Well, I would say that it's, it's both the, the food service and, the chefs at West New York and and the students that are definitely advanced. There's no doubt about it. With the other schools that we're working with, there's a lot more hand-holding, but we have to remember we've been working with West New York for over five years now, and so there's going to be hand-holding with simple things like what is in season right now. You know, that's a lot of what right. we have to review with the new customers. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to really send them availability lists months in advance so that they can plan out those menus. Yeah. yeah. Sal, what's the weirdest Jersey-grown food you have ever introduced to your students? There's been some... The coolest one would be pawpaws. Yeah. Which was great. I was hoping you'd mention the pawpaws. Uh, yeah, the kids sang the pawpaw song, you know, <laughs> and Mikey called me and was like, hey, we got these things. They're pawpaws. Like, from the song? Yeah. And... What, tell me about them. He's like, you know, they're they're foraged. Nobody grows them. Somebody sort of found them. And I don't have a lot of them, but I can do it for one class. So we got a class together, and, and the teacher was all into it, and it was great. I mean, that was cool. I remember... Well, do you want to describe a pawpaw? You go ahead. Okay. Well, it's f- flavor and texture-wise, it's somewhere between a papaya and a banana. Yeah. So it's got like a creamy custard texture and just kind of a... Really, really fragrant, fragrant flavor. Yeah. 
it's it's like tropical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, it's grown around here. Yeah. Um, I've only had it once, and I was just astonished, and yeah. I um, would love to have them again. I didn't know that you couldn't grow them, so they are foraged. That's interesting. Um, so before we go to station break, Mikey, I want to get a little personal with you. Sure. Um, you, you know, your motivations run pretty deep, and your goals for your company are idealistic. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Well, idealistic, yes, but but we have to be practical. So I, I, mm-hmm. I use the term practical mm-hmm. idealism. We're very much grounded in reality and what makes business sense. Yeah. Uh, but for me, you know, my journey was I started on the farm, working on farms throughout New Jersey, Vermont, Italy, came back to New Jersey, and it immediately occurred to me that I, working on a farm, seeing all these products growing, was eating more vegetables myself, beets, broccoli and they just seem to taste different and so i i started bringing that message to the kids at a community center in my town and one thing led to another and i started lots of school gardens in the town um eventually that kind of phased out as as zone seven came to be and now it's really gratifying to now come back to that mission of getting this food into the mouths of children. Yeah. So that and, that's a snippet of and my journey. Supporting Jersey agriculture also, um, because as you were saying, some of these things like those stripy peppers and undersized tomatoes would end up in the compost right. if you weren't able to find a market for them. So um, it, it's pretty exciting. Um, so guys, I think we need to go to station break. Um, and when we come back, I'd like to take a close look at the process of culture change in the West New York schools. It's taken a village and it didn't happen overnight. Um, you're listening to Inside School Food. Stay with us. Today's program was brought to you by Nutrislice. Nutrislice wants to see you succeed. They help school nutrition programs who want to do a little more with their marketing communications. Nutrislice is all about helping people increase their nutrition IQ. Their products are designed to engage, educate, and inspire greater levels of personal wellness. Whether you're interested in communicating the virtues of your nutrition program, upping your game in the fight against childhood obesity, saving money, or becoming more innovative, Nutrislice has the tools for you. They can help you reduce food waste by getting kids excited about eating healthy foods. Is your program serving healthy foods but not getting the credit it deserves? Nutrislice can help you communicate all the great things you're doing to parents, students, school administrators, and the community. They can also help you gain critical customer insights to your business. They've worked with the most innovative school nutrition programs in the country, big and small, and their experience speaks for itself. Get in touch today to see what Nutrislice can do for you. That's Nutrislice.com. Still paying attention? Are you there? Hello, 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 hello. I'm talking to you. Hi. 
Hey, this is Jack Inslee. I'm the executive producer here at Heritage Radio Network. I've been here at the station since 2009, and I cannot believe just how much this network has grown over that time. We've been able to grow because of donations from people like you. So if you're enjoying this, if you laughed, if you learned something, contribute anything. A dollar, two dollars, ten dollars, a hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, anything counts. And trust me, we'll appreciate seeing your name come through on the donations. So consider visiting heritageradionetwork.org, click on that little beating heart, the donate button, and show us you care. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome back. <laughs> Today we have with us in the studio two of the principal players behind the West New York School Food Success Story, food service director Sal Valenza and his locavore produce distributor Mikey Azara, who's founder and owner of Zone 7. We just heard a clip from another person who's central to this story. Sal, tell us about Chef Kim. So Chef Kim's been working with us now for a I think it's six years. The best part of the Chef Kim story is that when I hired her, she said to me, I'm not so sure I'm going to do this. I don't really like kids. <laughs> so um, at this point, Kim can't walk down the streets without somebody screaming, Hey, Chef Kim! And as you heard, she tends to scream too. Um, <laughs> but we brought Chef Kim in and sort of to go to where we were going to go to, I hope, uh, the culture of what was going on yes, in schools. Yes. So when we first started to work with the Alliance, it was really it was a, it was sort of a beat up the food service director week for about the first two or three meetings. Everywhere I went, I was you know, I went into the meetings and I was killing people with French fries and I was the devil. And my partner in crime, John Ferraccio, who is the now the athletic director for West New York Schools. We were the co-chairs and still are the co-chairs of the Wellness Council for West New York. And John said to all the teachers and the folks there, like, look, if you're just going to beat him up at every meeting, I'm just going to have him stop coming. And we got to the point where we started to have discussion. And it went back and forth. And we had people, I don't think we picked the best team the first year. Uh, we had people who were just very sort of insistent on you can't serve that. That food's not good. This food's not good. That's bad. And I'm like, guys, there's no food that's bad. You know, all food is good for you. You just got to know how to eat it and when to eat it. So the big piece was, you know, we've got to stop serving cookies. You can't serve these kids cookies. I'm like, guys, the cookies are, they're whole grain. They're low fat. They're, they're good. The idea is we got to get them away from only eating cookies, you know, and we need to make sure that they're moving and that, the whole kid is being addressed. And the big thing that I talked about was when we stopped focusing on cookies and we started focusing on culture in our schools, mm -hmm. that's when everything changed. Right. And that culture piece really happened in the second year that we were all working together. Because what we did was we came back. We had, a couple of us had gone out to Arkansas to the Clinton Library, and we saw a lot of cool things. We saw a bunch of Vermont feed people. And I, I watched the Vermont feed people thinking, wow. Those guys are so far ahead of us, and they're so cool, and they still are. But it, it was really neat to see what they were doing. 
So I came back and my goal was to hire a chef because I knew that that perception would really change our program. That kids seeing someone and saying, this food is made by someone. It's not just produced in the back and there's a button that gets pushed and a hamburger pops out. There are people behind your food. And that was the, the crux of everything sort of moving forward with food was getting that focus out there. Mm-hmm. Um, we started with um, our chef as someone who's going to be in the kitchens and working with kids there. Kim has progressed the program to where she's probably spending half her time in the classroom. That's what she told me. And it's really really cool because what happens is now the kids get to learn about the food in a non-threatening environment mm-hmm. they're they're in their classroom they try everything you know I, I talk to my staff a lot about that um, we've built trust with the kids so it's easier to get a kid that trusts you to eat something that they don't know what it is than a kid that doesn't right so they're willing to bite something and give it a shot i mean watching kids take their first bite of a radish is just a hilarious thing to do right. Right. Um, you know, so we've, we've been able to do that. And this is not something, as you said, that happened overnight. We've been doing this for eight years now, nine yeah. years. Um, what we saw, what you got to see at the middle school was really the fruition of all this time. Yes. Because in the last two years, we've seen a huge change in the eating habits of those kids. Um, five years ago, six years ago, we got an SMI in the middle school. Mm-hmm. And we had kids who, all they took was a sliced pizza and a milk, and we couldn't get them to eat vegetables. Right. You see those kids today, you can't get them to not eat vegetables. And it's not a typical, you know, you hear people complain about plate waste. You hear people complain about the regulations and how we have to give them a fruit or a vegetable, and we shouldn't have to do that. I I really don't agree with that in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, talking about, you know, if we took those regulations away for making them take a fruit or a vegetable, we'd save lots of money. I'm not going to save lots of money. My kids have been taught to eat this way. I'm still right. spending that money. Yeah, so you, you told me in an ideal world, Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act would have basically been introduced more gradually, starting with the younger right. kids, it, because you really can't tell a 16-year-old how to eat. Right, and, and we're, we are the poster boy for that. Yeah. If you looked at what they were eating when it all first came out, we were ahead of the game because we were working with the Alliance. But when we first started, you looked at how kids eat, and then you look at how they eat now, and it's vastly different. Right. So it's, it's, and it's really cool because right. they eat things like we can't keep beets in the house. I and, mean, you know, Mikey's got these beets that come in, we buy them, they're gone. It's amazing. Um, so, cow, okay, other so, 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 so beets. And I want to get back to Kim, and I want to get back to beets. Um, uh, <laughs> Jack, could I you have play a the next this is clip? Be a digestive quote. Of, yes, of Kim. <laughs> Our kids will eat uh, turnips. I'm talking second grade. Wow. They eat beets. Okay, and you know they're eating it because they'll tell me, Chef Kim, my poop was red. I'm like, yep, you ate them. You know, we learn the digestive system. You know, what is fiber good for? And we learn it fills up our bellies and it helps you poop. You know, and it's. I think it's very important that the kids know that. We brought a cow down to West New York a couple years ago. Kids didn't know where milk came from. It comes from ShopRite. So we got a 1,700-pound heifer to come. And when I saw the udders, I said, uh-oh. Um, let me tell you something, not an issue in the world. The kids asked what the mammary gland was for. Um, not one fresh question of the entire group. 
I was so proud of them. Then we had a nutritionist for the second half of the assembly. And I said to Sal, this is going to stink. They're going to hate it. Equally as impressed with the nutritionist as they were with the cow. Because they were learning how many uh, sugar cubes are in Gatorade and uh, Coke and Pepsi. And they were more fascinated by that than with the 1,700-pound cow. Yeah, so, so I love that, right? She's so great. But she she we, she talked about that in the larger context of, of how she works with your faculty to develop common core compatible curricula um, that, you know, brings food into the classroom. It's not just tasting. There's some science lessons. There's math lessons. There's even writing lessons that emerge from food, so it's it's like a that's part of that's been part of the culture change, right? And that was also we got a USDA grant, mm-hmm. a farm to school grant, and that was what we did with that grant was write some curriculum to work farm to school through all the different things. Yeah. Then having Kim physically going in and out of those classrooms, and it's not just as you said, it's not just Kim's going into the science class or the math class. She'll go into whoever asks for, her and and work with them on different things. So it's it's really kind of all evolved into this interesting thing and Kim tends to bring it back to poop I don't know how that happens all the time <laughs> she's very interested <laughs> but, in it <laughs> but, uh, it's just funny because you know you get kids um, and you find you find what what engages them and it's always great we had the guy come in the beekeeper that came in on Monday of our harvest week and he said to me I think I have about 15 minutes worth of stuff for these kids and I don't know what I'm going to do after that and it was a 45 minute period and five minutes after the period, they were still asking him questions. Of course. So they they really do engage and get involved in it. And I think it's because we've had them, as I said, from kindergarten now through eighth grade have grown up doing all of this. Right. So it's just part of the culture. When President Clinton was in our school and he was walking around um, with the woman from Channel 7 News, he said, if you were to come back here in two weeks or in two months, you'd see the same thing you're seeing today because it's in the DNA of these schools now. What, what year was that visit? That was probably three years ago. Yeah, yeah, that's very great. Yeah. Um, and then these these farmer visits that you're talking about and also there's field trips. Um, Mikey, I know that Zone 7 is pretty instrumental in setting that up. Do you like get the farmers to come to the school and talk to the kids? Well, getting the farmer to the school is a little harder, but... Um, you know, we're, we're always happy to kind of be that liaison with the farms. And so if Sal says they want to visit a farm, we line it up. Um, I would say more times than not, it winds up being me coming to the Mikey school to be, to be Farmer Mikey, which, um, you know, has, has worked out really well. Yeah. yeah, it has. You know, we got, I, I got to say his name because he's been instrumental in all this. We had Larry Cuser come out from mm-hmm. Fernbrook Farms. And in all honesty, I don't think we'd be in the same place we are now without Larry mm-hmm. because we all met that eight years ago at Fernbrook Farms and there was a small group of us that said, hey, this is the thing we want to accomplish. And all of the folks that were in on that meeting are now doing bigger things with schools and have worked to get farms into schools. Mm-hmm. So Larry was a huge piece in helping us get that started. And he came out and spoke to the kids on Thursday of our harvest week. Right. Right. So it, and it was really it was great. I mean, you got to see, you get to see a bunch of different pieces of it, which I thought were really 
uh, emblematic of what we do. They, they showed you, I mean, you had the kids in the gym doing the harvest obstacle course. Yes. We had the class that came from the high school and talked to the other kids. We had a lot of different people involved. And I think that when you talk about the culture and the community, that's what separates us from some other places I, and the I, support yeah. that we get from our administration is huge. Right. I, I'm really glad you mentioned those high school students because um, we attended one of the classes. It's an urban studies elective and these are high school kids who came in and, and talked to the younger kids about food justice, urban agriculture, um, public health, uh, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, and as I said earlier, this is the most densely populated region in the nation. These are city kids. Um, and they were showing them slides of, you know, the approach to the Lincoln Tunnel saying, you see any green hair? You know, and, and almost saying, you know, we have a right to this. Um, and it was very cool. And, and I have a clip of them. Um, let me see how to find that clip. Um, it is uh, Georgiama Sezak and Madeline Flores, two sophomores. Um, and I asked them, you know, do they take what they've learned home and how do they talk about it with their families? And this is what they told me. Um, I mean, it's it's like a debate. Some people in my family agree that GMOs are great because it can stop world hunger. But then I think we should really know where the food is coming from. So it's like a riptide in my house. It's just crazy. Like Everyone's like, ooh, like GMOs, no GMOs. It's a constant debate. A lot of times when I have this conversation with adults, they have the feeling or the attitude that, that fresh food or local food is something that is really expensive and therefore is only available for people who are wealthy. That's true. What do you guys think about that? Um, I think for my family, though, it's different because my dad, like, both my parents grew up with um, homegrown food in the garden, and my dad, he's crazy about organic food. We go apple picking every year. We try to pick all our fruits and veggies, and my mom, she grows tomatoes on our roof, and we live in a building. Like, she's really enthusiastic about organic, and so is my dad, and my dad says, like, price should never uh, matter for our health or quality, like, it's what's healthier, it's what's going to benefit our life. So that's a pers perspective my family's looking from. Um, from my family's perspective, it can be that although organic is healthy, the prices do vary because, you know, food, foods that are chemical and all mass-produced are cheaper because they're mass-produced. There's a wide variety of them, while organic is limited and there's not too much numbers of them. So that's why organic is usually, the prices are higher, but I don't believe that it's higher by that much. But for families that do not have like the best income, can't really afford the usual grocery list. So I, I found this conversation with these two young women so moving. I mean, they're really taking the learning home with them. And you can hear from what they say that um, food choices really matter to their families even as they grapple with the costs um and that's coming from school so so their teacher randy cabana mm -hmm. was one of the people that was was on the beginning wellness team she was the wellness coordinator for the high school when we went gold mm -hmm. so randy's been involved in this from the get-go too and really works with the kids to to give them that that sense of empowerment that they they'll talk about what they what they believe in they're mm -hmm. They'll, they'll voice their beliefs. And they're really a just great group of kids. And, and that's another thing that I think that we're very lucky in West New York is that we have awesome students. Mm -hmm. They really are. They're very polite. They're, they're just good kids. And I was interested, just her talking about, you know, growing the tomatoes on their, on their roof. 
you know, we grow, we have a garden at the high school. And the first year that we grew stuff there, I walked the kids outside and there were tomatoes. We had cherry tomatoes and I was eating them. And we had Swiss chard. I was made fun of about the Swiss chard. But I just started eating it. And the kids were like, what is that? I said, Swiss chard, eat it. And they're like, you mean you, you can eat the stuff that grew in there? Like they, they didn't yeah. have that connection. Yeah. So it was really neat to be able to show them that and then watch kids just eat stuff off, you know, trees and bushes and whatever was out there and, and just see their faces like, oh, you know, we, we grew this. It, it gives them a huge sense of ownership. Yeah. I mean, I spoke to a group of middle school students, too, as you know, and, and among them also I found a sense of connectedness to the land and particular to New Jersey agriculture, which is unusual in any setting. And here we are in this this town. Urban. Incredibly urban, right? And, you know, like there's no green anywhere, and they really they really know it, They and they're enthusiastic about and it. And I think, you know, you, you have to congratulate the teachers on a lot of that stuff we give them the information Mm -hmm. we send it out there but they really do make it work when we first started with the fresh fruits and vegetables program this was mikey came up uh beth fien came up we had a little kickoff it's beth fien from the new jersey department of agriculture yeah Mm -hmm. that is her the legend Uh, (laughs) so beth came up mike came up and we we did this big kickoff off event for fresh fruits and vegetables in the first school that we had it in and everyone was like very excited and happy about it. And we, paid, I paid attention to it for like the first week, knew everything was good, and didn't get back to that school to check on them again for maybe like three weeks. Mm-hmm. I walked into the school three weeks later. Every single bulletin board was about fruits and vegetables. They had they had kids just doing graphs, doing poems, drawing pictures. It was incredible how the teachers made it all part of their day and i think that you know whenever you can do something in a classroom where the kids can touch and feel and learn from that it's going to stick with them yeah and and i think that that's just a one of the great sort of offshoots of what we've been able to do really and that and that's central to your success story um you know so i we i need to wrap up but what a final question for for both of you if you could sort of quickly and i didn't warn you i was going to ask you this so um seven (laughs) wrong answer (laughs) I mean, looking ahead, where would you like to see the, you know, the trajectory you're on? Like, where would, where would you like, what, what, what further progress would you like to see in your work in farm school and, and good food in general in the West New York schools? Um, I'll start with Mikey. Well, for me, because we're working with so many new schools, I'm, I'm inspired by what they've done in West New York, and I'm just brainstorming about how, you know, we as the distributor can can help to make sure any other schools we're selling to are conveying and presenting all these foods with the same kind of uh, positive energy so that it can impact their culture. Because for us, you know, as a business, we are 100% local food, and so what I think about is how do we make sure this is not a trend Mm -hmm. that this is something that lasts and obviously the culture piece is the solution. So, um, I, I would love for, I, I don't know, just bringing these lessons to these schools. I don't know if I can somehow, um, clone Sal 
and 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 Kim and all they've done there to to help mm-hmm. throughout the state and throughout the country too. Like mentor other schools that are right. buying local. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, Sal. I, I look at it and I'd like I'd like to try to see Mikey get into more schools. <laughs> you know, in all honesty, we've been, we've been pushing this for for a while and it's starting to sort of take now. And I think it'll be really interesting to see where it all goes. Um, I hope that we can get the school lunch program less politicized, which really sort Amen. of freaks me out because mm. I never, I've never met a Republican or a Democratic tomato. You know, it's it's not what's out there. We need to make sure that what we're doing is making taking care of the children that are that we're feeding every day. And as school food service people, you know, we're always these can do it people. They throw stuff at us, we figure it out. And what we really need is for them to say, these are the rules, we're going to stick to them, and then we'll make it all work. It's just what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I hope that we get to keep moving forward with this. I hope that people understand that feeding a child is not a political thing. It's, it's a moral thing. It's an ethical thing. It's what we should be doing. Um, these kids are, are our future. So I would hope that we would be able to do more where we bring the communities in and get food as part of the school day. It's really. I wish you had been recruited to testify before the two committees this summer because <laughs> you're very eloquent. But yeah. Um, so um, you've been listening to Inside School Food. This is an in-studio conversation about the pioneering farm-to-school programming in West New York, New Jersey, um, in the heart of the most densely populated um, area in the whole of the U.S. Um, Sal Valenza and Mikey Azera, again, many thanks for joining us. Um, and to finish, um, we have a few more words from Chef Kim. She's talking about love which, at the end of the day, is what this is all about. It's pretty amazing when there's thousands of kids. When they were doing the park testing in the elementary school, the principal had asked that I not come in the building. I was very upset. I didn't know what happened. I said, did I do something? He said, no, but when you walk in the hallway, all the kids run out into the hallway to greet you. He said, and you'll disrupt the, the park testing. I said, no problem, no problem. And, but, you, and you're always in your shift coat when you work with the kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny when I'm not, the kids will say, Chef Kim, you're naked. I'm like, let's rephrase that for mommy and daddy. Uh, the little kids saw me in the summertime. I came down to do some work at Shorts on, and are, are you still the cooker? I said, yeah, yes, honey, I'm still the cooker. It's not really work, but I wouldn't tell Sal that. <laughs> there you go. I'm Laura Stanley, um, and if you're enjoying Inside School Food, please show your support by following us on social media. That would be Facebook or Twitter, or you can sign up for our Inside School Food email newsletter at InsideSchoolFood.com. This is how we know who's listening, which is very important. So so please do that today. Um, and speaking of support, um, once again, many thanks to our fabulous new season sponsor, Nutrislice. Um, also, a very special thanks to sound engineer Ann Pope, who took part in the interviews at the West New York Middle School and recorded all the audio clips we heard today uh, my theme uh, s- song to my show is by Taxstar um, and don't go away because we're about to play a short clip of one of my favorite heritage 
Radio Network podcast. It's called A Taste of the Past. It's food history, uh, moderated by culinary historian Linda Palaccio. You can find your way to her via heritageradionetwork.org. It wasn't really until the 1960s, particularly the 1970s, that they took off. And I have a theory about this, which has to do with the fact that donuts do well in times of economic crisis. Mm. So that if you look at the Depression, donuts were big. If you look at the 1970s, donuts were big. And if you look at the first decade or last maybe 10 years, when we've been in this economic crisis, right? Once again, donuts become huge. In episode 178 of A Taste of the Past, Michael Crondall talks about how and why the donut has remained a top-selling dessert, even in tough economic times. So they take off in the 1970s, and Dunkin' Donuts becomes by far, by far, by far the biggest chain. Uh, well, and then, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, suddenly, I don't know, you know, everything becomes the new darling. You know, the, the cupcake became the new craze, much attributed possibly to, you know, the television show Sex and the City. Oh, absolutely. Trends. I think that's right. And then donuts suddenly, you know, they, they never went away. They've always been around. But all of a sudden they became this new craze with odd flavors, exotic flavors, any flavor you can imagine. And donut shops, fancy donut shops, if you will, popping up all over the place, small ones. You know, artisanal donuts. Once yeah, I, I, it's it's a what 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 do you attribute to that? Well, I, I do think that part of it has to do with the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. I do think that has something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Donuts, like a cupcake, is an affordable treat. But I think there's something else about donuts. Donuts have a kind of a street cred that cupcakes will never have. If you want to learn more about the history of food, check out A Taste of the Past every Thursday at noon, and available all times at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. Heritage Radio Network is a member-supported nonprofit organization broadcasting over 30 live shows a week. To learn more and donate, visit our website or connect with us on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram for more. Thanks for listening.